Today, we come to the least read passage in the entire book of Luke. It's the genealogy, (laughs) a long list of names. And because we write our messages a month out, we got together to prep this message, and it was the week before Christmas. And we were trying to come up with a sermon title with the brain fog of Christmas season in full effect. So I said to our teaching team group, I said, what do we title the part that no one reads? And here was the answer we came up with. The part that no one reads. (laughs) Yeah, that was the peak of my creativity that week. And I know it's a bit snarky. Uh, I'm a bit snarky sometimes. But my hope is that it causes you to think this morning. Why is this the part that no one reads? Why do we often skip the genealogies in our Bible reading or Bible study? Why do we not hear a lot of sermons about these long lists of names? Well, let's state the obvious. It's a long list of names, (laughs) most of which we don't even know how to pronounce, much less who these people actually were. It's also repetitive. It reads more like a history book, and it doesn't seem at first glance to have any real application to our lives today. But here's the deal. These genealogies are in our Bible. And we believe that all scripture is breathed out by God, that every verse is profitable to equip us for living out our faith. That means it's all there for a reason, which means it's all important, even if we may not initially understand why that is. So why are these genealogies, these lists of names in our Bibles? And why did Luke put this genealogy in his gospel account? Let's remember that Luke stated from the outset that he spent time researching the life of Jesus, interviewing eyewitnesses with the goal of compiling an orderly and accurate account for a person he called Theophilus. So Luke didn't just throw stuff in his book for fun. He was very intentional about everything that he wrote and the way he organized it. So with that in mind, again, why did Luke put this genealogy in this place, in this gospel? That's what we need to unpack this morning. And the answer to that question will not only defend genealogies and explain why you should read and study these parts in your Bible, but the answer also has something to say to us living today all these years later. Let's look at our passage, and let's break it down. And let's just start with that first verse, Luke chapter 3, verses, verse 23. It says this, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Uh, Luke tells us right here, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Uh, he began his gospel with the miraculous births of both John the Baptist and Jesus. We then saw one story from Jesus' childhood where even then he kind of knew or he had this supernatural understanding of who he was and his mission. And then we jumped forward to John the Baptist's ministry as an adult in the wilderness. John the Baptist preached a baptism of repentance and his role was to point people to the coming of God's salvation in Jesus. That's what he did. And this culminated in the baptism of Jesus, where God the Father and God the Spirit confirmed that Jesus is God the Son. 
That's where we ended last week. And now Luke tells us we're going to focus in on the the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And, And significantly at this point, he was 30 years of age. Isn't it interesting that Jesus waited until he was 30 to go out and preach and perform miracles and call disciples. Uh, Think about it. If he was indeed the Son of God, if he really had the message of good news that God had come to save the world, why did he wait? Well, it's clear that Jesus was following a plan, a carefully designed plan, that for whatever reason God had designed in his perfect wisdom for Jesus to grow and to reach a certain age before he went out. We know that the age of 30 had great significance in the Old Testament. 30 was the age a priest would enter the priesthood. 30 was the age Ezekiel was called to his prophetic ministry. And 30 was the age that David began to reign as king. We see perhaps then a reference to Jesus being the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Despite that, Jesus was clearly following This well-worn path of taking the first part of his life to prepare and to grow and then entering into the service at the age of 30. It's at this point, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that Luke inserts his genealogy. And this is unique because Matthew puts his genealogy of Jesus right at the beginning. Very first thing, which makes sense. If you're trying to explain who someone is, wouldn't you want to start with where they came from? So why did Luke wait? Why did he put his genealogy here three chapters in? It's because Luke is not making only a historical point, but also a theological point. And that's so important to understand when we get to any of the genealogies in the Bible. If you and I wanted to understand our ancestry today, there are a lot of ways to do that now. There are websites and apps where you can trace your family's background. One of my sisters did that whole 23andMe thing where she sent off her DNA and it told where our family came from. It's it's really a lot of cool stuff out there. So, So when we think of a genealogy today, that's how we think of it. It's like a simple tracing of a family line. The parents of this person, the parents of this person. So we know who is related to who. But that wasn't necessarily the sole point for the biblical authors in their genealogies. Yes, they they wanted us to see who people were related to, but more importantly, they wanted to make a theological point. And this is exactly what Luke was doing. He isn't just telling us who Jesus was kin to, but he's telling us something about the person of Jesus. Like, Like his entire book, he's answering the question, who is Jesus? So what does Luke's genealogy tell us about who Jesus is? Well, I'm I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, They don't teach you how to pronounce Bible names in seminary. I won't embarrass myself, but let's kind of get a feel for the passage so we can better understand it. Look with me at Luke 3, verses 23 and 24. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. The son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph. Now, I want you to do something for me. If you have your Bible, if you don't, there should be Bibles in the seats under you. I want you to kind of take a minute and just scan your eyes. Don't read it all. Just scan your eyes down the rest of that genealogy and kind of note some things that you see. Take a moment to do that.
Okay, now flip over with me to Matthew chapter 1. One of the best ways to see Luke's point in his genealogy is by comparing it to Matthew's genealogy. There are some key differences that will help us see that they're making two different points. Uh, Look with me, once you find Matthew, look with me at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Here's how Matthew starts. He says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Now, again, don't read it all. Just scan your eyes down Matthew's genealogy and see what you find. Okay, now flip back with me to Luke's genealogy. And let's think for a second about the differences. The differences. Here's the first thing you may have noticed. They each go in different directions. Did you see that? Matthew starts with Abraham and works his way down the line to Jesus, while Luke starts with Jesus and works his way up the line to Adam. That brings us to a second difference. Matthew goes all the way back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, while, G- while Luke goes even further. He goes all the way back to Adam and ultimately to God. What do we make of that? Well, this goes to the different theological messages of their Gospels. Matthew wrote his Gospel to a Jewish audience, showing the Jewish people how Jesus was the fulfillment of Abraham's promise. He was explaining that Jesus' lineage demonstrates that he is the rightful Messiah the Jewish people were waiting on. Luke, on the other hand, wrote his gospel to a Gentile audience. So he was showing how Jesus wasn't just a Jewish man. He didn't come solely for the Jewish people, but he was also the hope of the whole world. He goes all the way back to Adam, the first man, and therefore he has a connection to everyone. Next thing you may have noticed is that These lists have some similar names, names like Zerubbabel, which is the most fun name to say in the Bible. He was a major figure in the return from exile. Uh, Both lists have David and Abraham, who were really big deals in Jewish history and Bible history. But if you were to spend more time with these lists, you would also notice a lot of differences. Not only are the genealogies different lengths, but some of the names are different. Get this, even Joseph's father or Jesus' grandfather is different in each list. How's that possible? Well, some have taken this as evidence to claim that the Bible contains errors and contradictions. Uh, either Matthew or Luke, must have them, one of them must have been wrong. They had bad sources. So the Bible isn't God's word, it's just man's word. Like all man's word, it's got some mistakes. That's what they say. But that's not the conclusion Christians and scholars throughout the centuries have come to. That's not the conclusion we have to come to today. Again, we believe the Bible is God's word without error or mistake. So there are traditionally two ways to explain the difference in the names. First explanation Christians have given is that Matthew is tracing Joseph's ancestry while Luke is tracing Mary's. Think about it. While both Gospels had the birth story of Jesus, the Christmas story, Matthew told his story from Joseph's perspective. Luke told it from Mary. So that kind of lends itself to that idea. But Luke, doesn't he clearly say Jesus, the son of 
Joseph? How then would that be Mary's ancestry? Well, it wasn't unusual in Judaism for a man who had no son to name his son-in-law his legal heir. So if Mary's dad, Heli, only had a daughter, then Joseph could rightly be thought of as Heli's son. And that could make this Mary's ancestry here. That's one possible way to think of Luke's list. The other explanation that has become more common and the one I think, I think makes more sense is that Matthew is tracing the line of royal succession back to the throne of David. That's why he starts with Abraham and David and works down. He's tracing the line of kings to show that Jesus, through Joseph's line, is the rightful Davidic king. While Luke, on the other hand, he's tracing Jesus' physical descent. He starts with Joseph and shows how Joseph was biologically related to all those people. How would that result then in two different fathers for Joseph? Again, we need to consider Jewish culture. It was Jewish law that if a man died without a male heir, his brother could marry his wife and bear children to continue on his brother's line. So it wouldn't have been unusual for that to be the case for Joseph's dad. One man could have been his biological father, while the other man could have been his legal father that carried on the passed away father's family line. I think that's a more likely explanation. Look, I know this is, may feel like uh, trivia, it's a lot of information, but I really do think it's important that when we encounter apparent contradictions in the Bible, we don't have to panic Or assume the worst, that our entire faith is ruined, we're going to have to shut down the church, it's all over. Look, we aren't the first Christians to think about these things. And there are so many great resources and smart people who have gone before, before us to help us understand the hard parts of the Bible. Let me encourage you, when you come to something you don't understand, don't panic. Don't assume. Just do your homework. Dig in a little bit and see what you find. Here's the bottom line of this whole issue. Matthew and Luke had distinct purposes in the way they organized their genealogy. They both accurately portrayed the lineage of Jesus, but they took different routes. And God gave us both to tell us two different but equally important things about Jesus. He is the promised Davidic king that came to rule Israel As Matthew says, and he is also the savior of the whole world, finding a common root with all of humanity, as Luke says. So, what do we do with this? How does this long list of names relate to my life and your life today? Let me spend the rest of our time by giving you three takeaways from Luke's genealogy. You ready? Here's the first. Number one. Jesus is man. And to that, you might say, well, duh. (laughs) But this is way more important than you might think. In fact, our salvation hangs on the truth that Jesus was fully man. This is one clear takeaway from Luke's genealogy. He wants us to see that Jesus came from an ancestry line just like us and was born of a woman as a man, a fully human being. Again, you may have no issue with that statement. You may be wondering, okay, why does that matter? Because the humanity of Jesus means that he can rightly represent us before God. I explain it like this. 
I think you guys know that I'm a big football fan. Uh, it's the sport that I enjoy watching the most. And one of the first parts of every football game is the coin toss. You know what I'm talking about? The elected captains of each team both come to the midfield. They shake hands if they're friendly, and the referee's there, and the ref flips a coin to determine who's going to get the ball first and who's going to kick and receive which direction. Now, they don't just let anybody represent the team at the coin toss, do they? They don't let fans come out and do that. They don't let coaches. They don't let every player, only the elected captains. In fact, you may have seen this season in the NFL, a guy on the Packers decided uh, to make himself a captain and to actually just go out there for the coin toss on his own volition, and he was suspended a game by the team. So it's, it's kind of a big deal. Only the rightful representative of the team, someone on the team who's a captain of the team, gets to be at the coin toss and make the call. And that analogy can help us understand why Jesus became man. And also why Luke traces his genealogy all the way back to Adam. Because Adam was the original captain of team people. He represented us. And he made the wrong call. He brought sin and death and evil into the world. He got us into the situation we're in. So Jesus came to be the true and better captain to fix what Adam had done. Jesus represented us rightly, and he made the right call. He did what Adam couldn't do so that we could be found righteous before God instead of as sinners. And let me show you that I'm not making this analogy up. This is exactly Paul's point in Romans chapter 5, minus the whole football coin toss thing. But Romans chapter 5, listen to this, verses 12 through 14. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there's no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam was a type of the one who was to come, Jesus. Verses 18 and 19, same chapter. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners... So by the one man, Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. Do you see that? There's a term we use to describe this. It's called federal headship. Adam was our head. He represented us being the first created man. And again, he blew it. So Jesus came to be our new head, our new representative, to be one of us. And he made things right as a second sort of Adam. And Luke doesn't say this explicitly, but let's think back. Where did Luke get his information to write Luke and Acts? He got it from Paul. He was the one who spent years traveling with Paul, recording his journeys. I'm sure this is something they would have discussed. This also helps us to see why Luke placed his genealogy where he did in his book. Because what does Jesus do right after this? Look at chapter 4. What does Jesus do next? He goes out into the wilderness 
to be tempted by Satan, tempted to eat, just as Adam and Eve. And yet, unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus will reject the temptation, defeat Satan, and pass the test. We'll look more at that next week. All this tells us Jesus is man. And that makes him qualified to represent us before God, to obey where we failed, to die in our place for our sin, and even now to sit at God's right hand interceding on our behalf. That's the first big takeaway from Luke's genealogy. Here's the second, number two. Number two, let's see if you guys can guess this second point. Jesus is, and you're smart. That's right, Jesus is God. Luke doesn't want us to just see that Jesus was a man. He wants us to see that Jesus is God. Because if Jesus were just a man, just another good religious teacher or someone like you and me, then he wouldn't be able to save us. He'd be infected with his sin nature, just like everyone from Adam on. He would be powerless to take our sin upon the cross. So how does Luke show us that Jesus is God in this genealogy? It's a bit more subtle. But he does it by connecting Jesus to Old Testament figures like David, Abraham, and Noah. These were men who made covenants with God. They're like promises. And in those covenants, God promised to bring salvation to the world. So by tying Jesus back to those guys, Luke is revealing how Jesus fulfilled those covenants and promises in himself. For example, let's think about God's covenant with David. David, you know, is the king of Israel and Listen to what God told him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He said to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God tells David right here after he dies, he says, Your thrones are going to be occupied by your descendants forever. And he talks specifically about Solomon, that's David's son, who's going to build the temple, God's house. But we know that God had to be talking about more than just Solomon. Because God says his throne, his kingdom, will be forever. And Solomon died just like David. There were many others who ruled on David's throne, some good, some bad. But none of them went on to live forever. None of them had this eternal kingdom like God spoke of until Jesus We see in the genealogy, Jesus is the rightful heir to David's throne. He is the man who will have a kingdom that never lasts because he's more than a man. He's God. And as God, he will rule his kingdom forever. So Luke, by tying Jesus to David, he demonstrates that Jesus was and is God. We also see this point in the very first and very last verse of the genealogy. Look back again at verse 23. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Look at that phrase. Did you notice that that phrase, as was supposed? That's Luke's way of pointing back to something he's already covered, which was the virgin birth. Legally, Jesus was Joseph's son. But biologically, he wasn't. He didn't have Joseph's DNA in his body. Jesus was conceived and married by the Holy Spirit. So if he wasn't Joseph's son, whose son was he? Well, that's where the last verse comes in. Look at verse 38. This is how Luke ends. He says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of 
God. Guys, there is no other genealogy in the whole Bible or in all of Jewish history that ends like this, calling someone a son of God. This is unique. Is Luke telling us that Adam is the son of God or that Jesus is the son of God? Well, I think we have here a little bit of a both-and situation. Adam, think about it, did not descend from any other human being. He didn't have a mother. He was created by God, and therefore, he can be thought of as a lowercase s son of God, or literally produced by God himself. But I believe Luke's also telling us again that Jesus is the uppercase s son of God. We saw this at Jesus' baptism last week. You remember the moment Jesus was baptized? The Holy Spirit descended on him. God the Father spoke from heaven, said, You are my beloved what? Son, with you I am well pleased. So Luke simply affirming again, as he will over and over, that Jesus is the Son of God. And it's so important, you know, that does not mean that God created Jesus. Jesus was not created. Jesus has existed for all eternity, and he has existed for all eternity as God's son. That speaks to their relationship. Jesus is the son of God, therefore Jesus is God. And guys, this changes everything. Because you see, only God could live a perfect life. Only God could take the infinite judgment of an infinitely holy God upon the cross. Only God could save us or else we would not be saved. So it is so important to know that Jesus is God. But there's one more takeaway from Luke's genealogy. Here's the third and last point, number three. Jesus is for all people. This is one of Luke's main points from his whole gospel. We're going to talk about this a lot. Luke wrote to a Gentile audience, as I said, And his gospel was meant to show them how they fit into God's plan of salvation in Jesus. Why would that have been important? Let's just consider what it would have been like to be a Gentile Christian back in the first century. Unlike your Christian friends who came from a Jewish descent, you didn't have the Jewish background. You didn't know all the history very well. You didn't receive all this Old Testament promises and inheritance directly. In other words, Gentile Christians would have felt that they were kind of on the outside looking in. That's why God sends Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And again, who was Paul's companion that documented his life and ministry? Who was it? It was Luke. So Luke picked up on that. He wanted the Gentiles to know that Jesus came for them too, just like Paul, that his salvation was for them. So by going beyond Abraham, all the way back to Adam, Luke shows that Jesus came for all people because all people descended from Adam. He and Eve are the one common ancestors we all share. So no matter ethnicity or background, No matter who you are, where you came from, or where you've been, Jesus came for you. His mission was to save people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and that's what he did. Right now, the gospel has been made known all over the world. And guess what? It's still going out to places that have never heard about Jesus. It's still being taken to people all over the world in all places. And whenever someone accepts Jesus, they become a part of his genealogy. 
You see this list of names right here? It's still being written. All those who trust in Christ become a part of his family. They become his adopted brothers and sisters. They become children of God, and they add their name to his genealogy. And when you become a part of the family, you get all the benefits of the family. Think about it like this. Uh, Let's imagine that you do decide to research your ancestry. You go online, you do some digging, and to your surprise, you find out that you're related to Milton S. Hershey. You know who that is? Yeah, that's the chocolate king himself, who in the year 1900 invented the first mass-produced and delicious milk chocolate candy bar. Thank you, Lord. Amen. (laughs) And to your further surprise, you find out that you are the direct heir to the vast chocolatey estate. (laughs) That includes the Hershey Company, currently valued this week at $38.5 billion. That includes an endless supply of Hershey's chocolate. In fact, you can walk in any store in the world anytime you want and take a bar for free because you have the Hershey's gold card. Not sure if that exists, but that would be amazing. I mean, just one simple internet search online and your whole life has changed. You and your family will never go without any need or want again. They're going to make a movie about you and you are going to gain 100 pounds. Okay, I know that was a silly example and really it was just a bold attempt to become the first pastor sponsored by Hershey. Um, But here's my point. When you're in the family... You get to share in all the family has. You get all the benefits and fortune the family has to offer. Legally, it becomes rightfully yours. So what do you think that means when you become a part of God's family? When you become his child, a son or daughter of the creator of the universe who knows all things, owns all things, can do all things, what might that mean for you? Forgiveness of sins, eternal life, peace, joy, endless love, purpose, and greatest of all, to know the one you were made to know and enjoy forever. To have a room in his house, a seat at his table, and access to everything you need. Paul said it like this in Galatians 4. He said, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, listen to me, but a son. And if a son or daughter, then an heir through God. Look, when you trust in Jesus, you go from being a slave to sin out on the street to a child of God and an heir to his inheritance. And that's available to you today. All of us have a genealogy, a background, an ancestry, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not. Maybe for you, sometimes it feels like the past of your family follows you wherever you go. 
Maybe some of you even wish your last name weren't your last name. Listen to me. When you accept Jesus, he rewrites your story. He joins us to his family tree. He writes our name in his book, in his genealogy, and we become children of God above all else. So what about you? Is that your story? It can be. Today, all it takes is trusting in Jesus for your salvation. Look, if you'll just call on him and give him your life, he will save you and he will change you and he will rewrite your story forever. Would you bow with me in prayer?